MLB show. I am Michael Bauman. I'm a staff writer at TheRinger.com. And live from New York, it's Ben Lindbergh. How you doing? Hello. I'm good. So our guest today is Marla Rivera of ESPN, and she did an incredible piece called The Baseball Experience on ESPN.com and ESPN The Mag, and we're going to talk to her about that. And Ben, I want to congratulate you on college baseball proofing this episode because there's <laughs> there was no connection between Marley Rivera and college baseball that I could I could find. That's true, but you still got to say the words college baseball, so we took care of that. All right, so there's lots of news in the league, but there's one thing in particular that I want to talk about, and news out of Atlanta is Freddie Freeman is coming back from the DL soon, and the Braves have acquired Matt Adams. In the meantime, he's hit well. Matt Adams is very much a first baseman, (laughs) and he has played a little bit of the outfield before, but the Braves, like (laughs) the only things that are going right for the Braves right now are the outfielders. So in order to get Adams and Freeman in the lineup at the same time, there are rumblings that Freddie Freeman is going to play third base. Mm -hmm. And I had actually not been aware that Freddie Freeman had played third base in professional ball. It turns out he played five games in rookie league at Uh third base in 2007. So uh, I just want to say I'm a huge fan of putting huge, slow guys who can't actually play third base at third base. I was there for the Angels doing it with Albert Pujols and the Orioles doing it with Chris Davis. And I can't wait to see how this turns out. So I don't know if you have more thoughts on uh, something that will make Braves games really, really interesting. Yeah, well, before yesterday, I would have guessed that this would just remain rumblings and not actually happen, but then we saw video of Freeman taking grounders at third base and we heard him talk about it and it turns out it's his idea, which would seem to make it much more likely. But you're right, it would be fun. I think that this is something I'd love to see more of. I don't know why we would see more of it, but players coming back at positions they originally played. Grant Brisby did a fun article around draft time about the positions that players were originally drafted at, like Eddie Murray was a catcher and Jim Tomei was a shortstop. And I think Mike Morse was a shortstop and Manny Ramirez was a third baseman. And obviously they're fun alternate history scenarios you can play out here. I learned when I was doing that, that first base prospect story. I was unaware of that. Yeah. So these are fun. And every now and then you do see a player go back to a, a previous position. Like when we saw Miguel Cabrera slide over to third after being a bad first baseman for a while and not really having his third base body anymore. And he was bad, but it didn't sink the Tiger season or anything. So it's something that I think, especially when you're talking about a franchise player like Freeman, it usually doesn't make sense to move that player in favor of the guy who just got there. (laughs) But if it does happen, then hey, that's uh, another reason to watch Braves games or or a reason to watch Braves games. Funny you should mention that. Former podcast guest Liz Rocher from Big League Stew wrote about this Wednesday morning, and she suggested that despite Matt Adams having five fewer professional games at third base, that Adams should be the one to move over there. Uh, essentially because if he gets killed, it's going to hurt the Braves less than, than if Freeman gets killed. So that's you know yeah. a, a not inconsiderable thing to think about. Yeah, I mean, having a player play out of position over a full season is something that can really hurt you. But here and there, you can get away with it because you can get lucky and have a game where balls just aren't hit to a guy. You'd be surprised at the percentage of plays that are really routine plays that 
that almost any major leaguer could probably handle most of the time. Often it's those borderline plays that the really good guys can make and the bad guys can't. And that's what separates the good from the bad. But you might not have those over a, a stretch of a few games. So it's possible that you can hide a guy from time to time. And if this were to happen, it would be fun. But yeah, I mean, it's just part of the weirdness of baseball that Matt Adams, after being discarded by the Cardinals, has essentially hit like Freddie Freeman while Freddie Freeman has been out. While with the Angels, of course, Eric Young Jr. has played like a superstar since Mike Trout has been out. And those teams really haven't missed a beat at all. That is just part of the weird randomness of this sport. So you're ta- I assume you're taking the under on Freddie Freeman doubling his career 48 and a third <laughs> innings at third base. I think I am reluctantly. Okay, so assuming he does play third base at all, will you take the over under on his fielding percentage at the at the position, which at rookie ball was seven eighty six, three errors in fourteen chances? Yeah, seven eighty six. I'm going to take the over on seven eighty six. I mean, okay. Freddie Freeman is uh, he's not a bad first baseman, and maybe he'd have a hard time adjusting to the quick reactions that are necessary at third, but he could handle balls hit at him. I would think and and make the throw. So I, I doubt he's going to be charging any bunts and barehanding them. But fortunately, no one bunts anymore. Yeah, I don't know. It's because nobody plays Freddie Freeman at third base. <laughs> That's true. We might see the teams bring back the bunt. If that <laughs> yeah, comes to I pass. bet they bump more if, he's, if <laughs> you're playing Freddie Freeman or Matt Adams at third base. Yes. So ESPN has been running a season-long feature on Latino players called the Baseball Experience, and most recently, earlier this week, published a a huge package of interviews with 50 players on several topics, including home and family, learning English, food, money, ballpark culture, identity. A number of people contributed to this report, but the person who did a large part of the reporting is Marley Rivera of ESPN and ESPN Deportes, and she is joining us now. Hi, Marley. Hi, guys. Thank you for having me. Very, very nice to be here. It's very nice to have you on. So one thing that stands out about this to me is just the scale of it as a reporting project. And there, mm. there's the cool design on the website. But like most of all, like I don't think I've talked to 50 human beings in the year 2017. So like, <laughs> how long did this take? How did you you know go about introducing this idea yeah. to the players you talked to? I have to tell you um, that I'm with you on that list. I just happen to have to talk to these players. So in terms of regular people, I don't think I can live. Uh, way too many outside my my uh, very close friends and family. But this started about a year and a half ago or so. Um, the baseball editor of ESPN, the magazine who I collaborate with frequently, her name is Rachel Ulrich. And um, Rachel and I were talking and we always do collaborations. We used to do this Q&A for the magazine um, with a Latino player. She said, we really um, want to do a larger scale kind of story. And we we kind of talked about a bunch of ideas and we didn't know how we would really go about it. And she said, how about we start interviewing just as many players as you can, because I, um, I usually go to three or four major league baseball games a week. I am assigned to Wednesday night baseball used to be assigned to Sunday night baseball and used to be on the Yankees beat. So, um, so it's like, let's just start talking to these guys and see what comes off it. And so about a year and a half ago, we started doing this. We developed a list, a very, very long list of questions. And we started working with the folks, the editors at ESPN.com, ESPNDeportes.com, and ESPN the magazine. And this group of just way smarter people than me would get together 
and we would do this very long list of questions. And then what I started doing, and we didn't really know how we would use it. We would think, we thought, well, we'll do this interview project and that's, um, we'll see later what we can do when we start getting the answers to the questions. And I would sit down with a player and because the list was so long, it would take me maybe 30 to 40 minutes, maybe with each player. So I would do maybe one a week because it was, mm-hmm. you know, just uh, what you could do. These players don't have a lot of time. And I've been uh, covering baseball. I've been a baseball writer for a very long time. So in the beginning, I did it with players that I knew very well and that I knew that would give me the time. As we started developing it and the questions started, you know, we getting great answers, then the interview project develops. And they're like, okay, let's try to aim for an X amount of players, right? At the time, it wasn't 50. And as we went along and it, it became a target of a certain number, then we said, okay, Marley, you need some help. This is going to be very difficult for you to just do it by yourself. So we enlisted the help of everyone basically at ESPN. And what they would do, they wouldn't do the same process that I would do, just sit down with the player for so long, but they would get assigned a certain amount of questions. So a specific topic that we needed some answers for and a specific player that maybe they were going to see on their beat or along their, their travels of all these uh and then that's kind of where it developed and it became just this huge project and, and baseball experience went cross platform ESPN. Now it's a project that involves TV and, and com and the magazine. And it just really became a little bit of a monster um, that we're pretty proud of. Mm-hmm. And the great thing about it, of course, is that English-speaking readers get to hear from these yeah. players that are undercovered in the American English language media very often because the writers and broadcasters don't speak Spanish or aren't fluent and just don't uh, approach these players or aren't able to have their thoughts conveyed as as naturally as, as they've been conveyed here. And I, I'm wondering how you've seen that change, if at all, during your time covering baseball. Of course, there are translators in the clubhouse now. I'm yes. wondering how much that has helped. Maybe a, a few more writers are learning Spanish or have already learned Spanish before they came to to take the job, but it still seems as if it is a, a problem that this series is correcting. But have you seen progress in that area aside from this series? A hundred percent. I think that I've been covering baseball for over 10 years. And when you see it's completely different. These players that normally would just sit in a corner and, and not speak to anyone, then now have a voice because there is a translator in every Major League Baseball clubhouse, which has been a mandate of the MLBPA. And that, as you guys well know, only happened in the last two years. In the past, mm-hmm. like you correctly mentioned, uh, players that were not fluent, because uh, I think that especially the stars, you know, all the superstars, they always at least manage some sort of communication um, in English. And if they didn't, the team would help them out. But if you weren't a star, if you were just an average player in that 25-man roster, then maybe your story wouldn't be told. And I and I do think that having the translators in the clubhouse has been a great help. Now, it does not substitute speaking the language like you guys well know. And it's... Um, these players feel much more, many of these players that are, that are on this list. And, and, and for the record, we interviewed a lot more than 50. It's just, these are the ones that we selected, right. For, for the interview, many of these players feel a lot more comfortable 
speaking in Spanish. And that's also a different factor. The fact that they prefer to communicate in Spanish, just like I do, because that's my first language. I mean, I, I grew up speaking in English most of my life, but Spanish is still my first language. So if I'm going to have um, very sincere communication, and some, not that I'm being insincere, but if I want to <laughs> express my thoughts, it's a lot easier for me to do it in Spanish because it's the language that I grew up speaking. And I think that's what it is. And in terms of the bilingual writers, it is a rarity. There's very, very, very few of us that, um, that speak both English and Spanish and cover baseball. It's really quite dire, the necessity of, uh, of more writers um, reaching out. And I do have to give credit to all of my U.S. born and American um, writers who are trying out there to, to learn a, a second language. What can non-Spanish speaking American writers do better is, you know, I'm curious as someone who doesn't speak Spanish and finds himself in a clubhouse with a lot of Spanish speaking players. I think that just relate to them. And I don't know that you necessarily like if you don't have a knack for, for language, right? Some people are simply I know many very, very good people in the Yankees beat that I was a part of who couldn't. I mean, they really tried, right, to try to learn a second language. It just wasn't their ability. They were great writers, just were not great at, at Spanish. So that doesn't necessarily make you neither a bad person or a bad reporter. And I just think that you just have to try. And one of the things that the players do appreciate is that you learn one of the things that some uh, writers would do is learn a phrase here and there. And I think that establishes a rapport with the player. It doesn't mean that you have to do an entire interview in English. You're unable to. It's not a language that you speak. But if you say buenos dias or if you say como estas, there actually is a it's a, a little rapport that you establish with the player. I've seen that people like Aroldis Chapman, maybe who was, I'm trying to think, just someone who doesn't have great English skills, who, who lights up when people say just good morning or good afternoon. And then the rest of the afternoon, then maybe he says, oh, he's trying. You know, I can try too. And I think that if you, the worst attitude that you can have is this attitude of you're in America, you better learn English. And um, and I've seen that happen and I understand it because you are in America and this is a sport where you do have to learn how to speak English if you want to communicate. But in the end, these are human beings and maybe they don't have the same power to have language skills the same way you can't learn Spanish. Maybe they can't. It, it's very difficult for them to learn English. Not, it's not for lack of trying. So establishing an empathy. I think that's that's the key. Once the player believes, once you treat them as a human being, then, then you're going to be all right. Maybe they'll do the same with you. They start seeing you as a human being. And I want to come come back to that, but I'm curious, how do you, translating from from Spanish to English, you know, is it mm. difficult to to get the same message across? Because idioms are different, meanings are different, you know. How do you toe that you line with? Yeah, I think it's because I'm fully bilingual. So it's just very easy for me. But I do think that it's, an, it's, um, it's a hard thing to do. It just comes with covering baseball for a long time, you know, that even though I've only, you know, major league baseball for like 10 years, but I've grew up in baseball, covered baseball for a long time and speak both languages for a long time. So it happens to be easy for me. I am an exception to the rule. It happens to be easy to a couple of people for a couple of people that I worked with. You know, we, we hired a translator who helped us when, when I didn't have time, right? Cause there were so many interviews and they were very long. So, um, so sometimes I would get some help, but it requires a unique skill set. So definitely, I, I don't know what to tell you. And I, and I hope I'm not sounding like I'm tooting my own horn here because I really don't mean to. It's just um, I've just been very lucky to speak the language for a very long time. Sometimes I hear 
you know, people say, oh, you know, idiomatic and stuff, but I grew up in it. So I grew up, you know, since I was a teenager in New York. So then you kind of, it's easier for me. It comes naturally for me. It may not come naturally to other people who don't speak English throughout their lives, but we do have, um, and some of these players do, um, do speak English too, like, you know, the Manny Machados, the Deli Betances, Alex Rodriguez, like these players that grew up in the States. Yes, Manny Grandal. These are players that grew up in the States. So it's a little bit easier for them to convey the message in both, both languages. So I think that's what it is. It's just familiarity with the language. And, um, it is a, a skill that just takes time. And because you talk to so many players, you've got a great cross-section of clubhouses and countries mm. of origin and ages, which is really interesting to me. You spoke to people over probably close to a 20-year age range from, yeah. say, Adrian Beltre to Julio Urias or Gleyber Torres. And so I'm curious about how the responses differed. If you were talking to some of the older players about the difficulties that they went through and then you talk to some of the younger players who are maybe going through the same stage of their life now, is it clear that the newest crop of players has things much easier or that the struggles that the older players faced have kind of paved the way for the next generation? A hundred percent. That's exactly how it is. When you speak to to people, and because you mentioned Beltre and let's add Albert Pujols, right? The players with, mm-hmm. with uh, Carlos Beltran, players that have close to a 20 year career. And then you speak to a kid who's been, you know, Wilson Contreras, Claver Torres was not even, you know, well, now as we well know, won't be up in the majors at least for another right. year. But um, when you speak to, to players like this, it's entirely different. The experience it's, it's, it couldn't be more different. Now there are commonalities, right? Similarity, but at the same time, especially when it comes to learning the language, that one, is um, the biggest culture shock for everybody is the food and the language. It's just, it's almost universal as it came. It actually became a very boring question. Like my first question would be like, <laughs> what was the most difficult thing that, that um, you had to deal with or adapt to when you first moved to the, East, the United States? That was like my standard uh, opening mm-hmm. line. And the answer invariably, oh, English and the food. I mean, every single time. So, yeah. um, so that one didn't change, but the way of coping with it did. So that's what it was. So the new kids, like the younger kids, I don't mean to say new, have a lot more elements to deal with, right? The classes are there. There's a lot of English classes. It's widespread. When, you know, when Nelly Cruz and Edwin Encarnacion and all these guys, Jose Bautista, in the beginning were doing this, maybe there was like one once a week or maybe once a month. There were not as many Latin players. I mean, there, there were plenty, but there were not as many Latin players as there are now. You know, and rookie mm-hmm. ball, like I mean, something close to like over 75% it's Latin players. So the experience itself was much more difficult for the, well, I mean, I don't want to compare degrees of difficulty, but it was different. And uh, the older players had less tools to manage. I mean, Nelson Cruz would carry a, a pot to make rice and beans on the road along with his, uh, <laughs> you know, with his road gear. <laughs> You know, certainly right. the younger players don't need to do that. And also the younger players have been exposed to American food and fast food in their home countries in the last 20 years, which is something that is more widespread than maybe when uh, when Adrian Belcher was a, was a teenager, you know, 21 years ago. There were not, you know, because all these kids don't have a lot of money and the budget for minor leaguers is so small, they tend to eat at fast food places. Now, in the mm-hmm. last 20 years, there's been plenty of, you know, McDonald's and, and whatever, you know, Burger Kings and so on in the Dominican Republic. So then you're kind of used to that uh, pattern of food and, and eating. So 
while it was very foreign 20 years ago, it's very common to the kids now. So yes, it's, uh, and obviously for the younger kids, the list of questions was shorter. <laughs> and you had, right, for the older guys, you wanted to talk about family and um, what are you doing to uh, raise your children, whether they speak English or Spanish at home. And the younger kids, you don't have to worry about that. So there's, you know, the list of questions was shorter and it seems like they have more tools to deal with these challenges nowadays. Yeah. And that's obviously a good thing in that, you know, teams absolutely be interested in, in easing that transition just on a, a human level and wanting to make these players lives easier but even if you're looking at it in a cold calculating level of these players as investments it just makes so much sense to to ease that transition i was reading benji molina's memoir from a, a couple of years ago this past weekend and i was thinking you know times when i was homesick in my own life and just how far it was from what he had to deal with when in his teens he just went to arizona and he didn't even know he was going to arizona he thought he was going to florida and he'd <laughs> yeah. never been in a place like this he didn't speak the language he didn't really know anyone and it's just so alienating and to be just plopped down into that situation and then have to perform and play and beat out all of these other talented players or some of the quotes you have in the food section here where you have Ubaldo Jimenez saying <laughs> that you know in the Dominican he would have rice and beans and beef at noon and then he was going from that to hot dogs and sandwiches and it was hard for him and he went home and his mother barely recognized him because he'd lost 15 pounds they I got mean, so skinny. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's hard enough just to to make it if you have everything going your way. But if you're facing these challenges that American players yeah. don't face, then you're already way behind the eight ball. I think and I think the biggest challenge and you're absolutely right about everything you said, how alienating. I like that you use that word because I believe that's exactly the key. But while these challenges like food and language and, and feeling lonely and feeling homesick are extremely difficult, the good thing about that, not only did they make, make them stronger people, is that it actually forced them to bond with the people around them. Now, the mm -hmm. hardest thing that I found for them, and, and in speaking to a great section of them, was when very difficult things happened personally. When, when family things happen, you know, these are 16, 17, 18-year-olds dealing with a death in the family. When a parent died, when something terrible was happening back at home, and they were so ill-equipped to deal with that by themselves. And I think that that's the part that really breaks your heart because at the same time, even when I was a teenager studying in the United States by myself, right? I was going to school in Massachusetts. If something terrible happened at home, my parents would send me a ticket, right? And I would go and, and I would be able to be with my family in Puerto Rico and I would get to do this. This is not how it worked for these kids, right? Like if they had to stay, they were in minor league camp. They were trying to make the team. It happened to Felix Hernandez when he called home because he was so lonely and something terrible had happened. And he said, Mom, I want to go home. And she stood up there and told him, you know, son, you wanted to be a ball player. So this is what it takes. And it's just very interesting that at this point, you know, these guys had to deal with this major life event that happened to Megan Montero, whose father died in the middle of spring training. And he had to deal with this as a young man by himself in the middle of nowhere. And I think those moments were the ones that just really shock you because while the food and the language and all those things are extremely hard and it shapes you and being homesick was very, very hard for them. When major things happen in the family, just these teenagers dealing with things without their families around was just so difficult for them, but it made them who they are and it made them very independent and strong people. And I think that's sort of uh, the message. 
so baseball is it's a very hierarchical sport like there's a lot of sense that you ought to respect the vets and you know young kids need to need to earn their spot how is that among latino players you know particularly veterans who didn't have it quite as easy as this generation is there that that sort of friction the way there is with with uh, non-latino players I think the the hierarchy, as you mentioned, not with that side of the game, because I do think that because the Latino culture is very patriarchal, which means that, you know, you kind of always, you know, look up to the man in the house and the older guy in the house and this kind of stuff. So I think it's almost like a natural transition in that sense. But what is harder for them is the, the transition to the style of play and just kind of conforming to a certain set of rules and changing your personality a little bit because as Latinos in general, there's plenty of them who are very quiet. And, and you mentioned Ubaldo Jimenez, perfect example, extremely quiet. And, uh, you know, who just, you kind of get surprised. We, we joke about it. We're like, you're really Latino. Like it's really not because you're just such a, a quiet, peaceful person. There's quite a few of those. Eddie Encarnacion is another one, but at the same time, this fire that they have controlling it. And we just saw it in Yesiel Puig saying that it will be taking that personality and that gusto that I have for the game away. That's harder for them. That part of having to curb that passion for the game being seen as something disrespectful, you know, for the quote unquote uh, code of baseball. So I, I do think that the, the hierarchy stuff is not as difficult for them as the code, you know, following the code. Mm -hmm. In this article, you, I think, do a, a really good job of pointing out the differences between the different Latino cultures. And maybe if you're not familiar with them, there's a tendency to just lump Latino players together. But of course, they're coming yeah. from different places <laughs> with dramatically different backgrounds. So we know that, say, you know, Venezuela has a lot of political and unrest and, and violence and danger. And we know that Cuba makes it very difficult for players even to, to get here here in the first place. Are there any lesser known differences, you know, when you're talking about Puerto Rico or Panama or Venezuela or the Dominican or Cuba that we might not know about, whether it's in food or, or culture or the path to the big leagues that are important? I think that we all have the Caribbean countries, especially you know, Cuba, Puerto Rico and the Dominican are very similar in terms of culture and food. We all have different accents. Right. So, for example, if I'm speaking to a which is something that I that I wish that that sometimes American writers would get because it's very it's a lot of fun. So when I walk in and they know I'm coming, they'll start speaking in my accent to make fun of me. So they'll say <laughs> things like that. So we obviously have different accents. You can I can identify very easily, just like, you know, just like anyone in the United States states can identify someone who's from Minnesota from someone who is from, you know, from Texas. So it's the mm -hmm. exact same way, right? Like I know when someone is from Cuba, when someone is from the Dominican and someone is from, you know, from any other of these Latin, you know, Spanish speaking countries. So besides that, besides the accent and slight uh, differences in food, you know, Brazilian food is entirely different. Venezuelan food is entirely different from Caribbean food, right? Dominicans, Puerto Ricans and, um, and Cubans have a little bit more similarities among them. And, and so do Colombians because they tend to come from the coast. So and if you're from the coast, you're considered also a Caribbean person. So then, because the Caribbean Sea is right there. So then all these people have these things in common. These slight differences just sort of make it richer. But what has happened, the phenomenon that has happened in Major League Baseball, like you said about grouping them all together, is that they've all kind of become one one big group and it's just really fun to watch they all there's a tradition amongst um, Dominican players it doesn't happen in every clubhouse 
but it happens in a lot of them where the elderly statesmen, for example, if let's just just for the sake of argument, because I was I was just there when the Yankees are at the Angels, the elderly statesman here is Albert Pujols. So the elderly statesmen of all the Hispanic players will send food to the opposing clubhouse. And we'll sell Dominican food, right? Like just Latin food that either his mom or maybe they have, you know, a helper in the house or or his wife has made. And they shared with all the other Latin players. And that is shared with either Venezuelan or Cuban, right? It doesn't matter who you are. So I find that very interesting that they've all become this really big family despite those minor differences. Also, we use different different expressions for things. So, but we are not as different as sometimes people may think. So the, the, the communication is pretty easy. I think that you can see it, as I mentioned before, as someone from Minnesota and someone from Texas. Like the same kind of um, the intonation of the way that you say things. You may use different words for certain stuff. But in general, uh, we all um, understand each other very well. And there's slight differences don't really, um, they, don't, they don't affect the commonality uh, of the rest of it. Now, most, uh, because you mentioned Venezuela and Cuba, Dominicans and Puerto Ricans cannot relate to that experience. It's very, very difficult mm-hmm. for them to relate to that experience. And it is an experience that only Cubans and Venezuelans can talk to each other about because it's such a terrible political unrest. And it's just really difficult for them. So I do think that part of it, um, because if you haven't gone through it, just people can't relate. And yeah, I wanted to ask about Venezuela because it's, I mean, it's a complicated yeah. situation. Like we sort of terrible. look at it from the U.S. that they go, there's unrest in some far-flung South American country. And you get a little bit of this. Megan Montemiro, who's a Phillies beat writer, wrote a story about it uh, just because the Phillies have so many Venezuelans on their team. And you can see like hints of factionalism, but like nobody's coming out and talking about it. Do you have a, a sense that this is a divisive issue, you know, between Venezuelan well, players? No, not between the players. You know, what happens is, and we did a really big piece for OTL a couple of weeks ago, and I had for Sunday Night Baseball, we put together um, all the Venezuelan players and the Rangers and the Venezuelan players and the Tigers. So it was, you know, Miguel Cabrera was there. K-Rod couldn't be there, but Miguel Cabrera was there and Omar Vizquel was there and then uh, the four Venezuelan players. And the Rangers were there, Robinson Chirinos, Martin Perez, uh, Rugnet Odor, and um, Elvis Andrews. And we put them all together to speak about this. And it is not divisive among the players what has happened. And I've, sp- I've spoken to a lot of players about this. We did a really big piece with um, Francisco Cervelli that later on, then like a week later, he wrote the letter in the Players' Tribune. So we've been doing this for a little while. I mean, I've been trying to do this a little while. But what happens is that the Venezuelan government has accused the players of being in collusion with Major League Baseball. And that the only reason why they speak up because they're being told by Major League Baseball to speak up, otherwise they'll lose their jobs. So because they're so against any U.S. policy, they believe that the Venezuelan players are, and this is what they tell me, they believe that the Venezuelan players are accessories to the U.S. And the only reason why they're speaking out against, um, against the government is because they're made to do so. So all these players, what they do is they take to social media. They've done it for about three, four years now. And if you go to the social media of all the Venezuelan players, a great majority of them, they're very outspoken in social media because that's the way to get the message out there. And one of the things that Miguel Cabrera told me was that this isn't about political ideology. This is about people dying on the streets. And and we are Venezuelans and this hurts us. Francisco Cervelli, who's been one of the more outspoken guys, and let's be very clear, Francisco Cervelli is outspoken because all of Francisco Cervelli's 
surveillance his family is no longer in Venezuela. So it's very difficult for these players who have families out there to speak up against the government that they believe is a dictatorship that uh, when their families are still there. So, you know, we kind of have to understand that they fear for their families. We have no idea what that feels like. So there's no way that I can speak up against something if I don't, you know, if I think that my family is in danger, which is what they do. So they take to social media and they'll say things and they've created three years ago, I remember they created these shirts and um, these hashtags and just trying to get that message out there that they are supporting, um, especially these kids that are out on the streets protesting um, the government of Nicolas Maduro. So I think that that this, this has bonded a lot of the Venezuelan players. I've spoken to them about it a long time. I was in the WBC and I was assigned, I was the assigned reporter to, um, to broadcast and cover Venezuela. And, and it was a very kind of difficult situation for them because they were there representing their country. And at the same time, they knew what was happening out there and how much Venezuela loves baseball. But uh, Felix Hernandez said it best. He said, I, I fear uh, going back. I just don't know, you know, my family is out there. All my family is out there. And I just, it breaks my heart what's happening in Venezuela. So I do not think that it's divisive among them whatsoever. They're all, you know, very supportive. I just think that each one of them has a different level of comfort about speaking out. And what about domestic politics? Yeah, they don't, they don't talk about it. (laughs) Well, it's the same thing, but this is a, this is a malady of of major, I don't want to say that because then I'm putting my own, uh, uh, angle on it, but this is a, a problem, you know, something that happens across Major League Baseball. It was um, some very interesting articles that happened recently about that, how Major League Baseball just really is not spoken. Most 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 players are not outspoken about mm-hmm. social causes the way maybe the NFL and the NBA are. And it's just very interesting to see that. This is a very, and, and the irony of it all, I think it's like they have the strongest player union. So I do think that, you know, the you know, the backlash would be less. They would feel they should feel more comfortable speaking out because the mm-hmm. players' union for the for Major League Baseball players is so strong. So I do think that they would be supported, maybe in ways that the NBA or the you know the NBA Players Association or the NFL Players Association don't have that power to protect them. But if you look at it, most of the players in, in Major League Baseball, but not most, but a third of them are in the brands, and you're afraid of um, right. of losing the job that supports your family. And I, the only uh, two or three people that gave me interesting answers were Sandy Leon and Hallie Ramirez, who both told me, you know what, we just play too many games. That's the difference between us and the rest <laughs> of the, of the other sports. We don't have time. We like, we have uh, two months of spring training and 162 games. And that doesn't even include playoffs. So we don't yeah. really, they're like, we just have too many games in comparison to those other leagues. So they're not there privately. And, and I mean, we did a very long interview with the one Latin Latin manager in Major League Baseball, Rick Renteria of the Chicago White Sox. And he said, it's just that when I put on a uniform, I'm speaking on behalf of the Chicago White Sox. And you have to be very careful. So in my private life, I express my opinions. But when I wear a Chicago White Sox uniform. I represent an organization. Mm -hmm. And there's just one more thing I wanted to ask you about in here. You have a a Yadier Molina quote. He says, in the clubhouse, an American feels more comfortable with Americans than with Latinos. A Latino feels more comfortable with Latinos. And you've been in clubhouses all around baseball. I'm wondering whether you see any difference from team to team in how closely those groups intermingle and what, if anything, teams can do to encourage that kind of intermingling in clubhouses. The short answer is yes. 
this happens very frequently. It's, um, it's interesting to see. And I'll give you an example of what the Minnesota Twins are doing now. A lot of people are very surprised about the success of the Minnesota Twins, me included. I would have never said, right, that we would see the Minnesota mm-hmm. Twins performing the way they are. What the Minnesota Twins did this year is something that they followed from uh, the team Puerto Rico team from the WBC. Hector Santiago and Yari Molina, during the WBC, they created this WhatsApp um, app chat room, mm-hmm. chat, chat group. I'm not very uh, internet savvy, so I don't know <laughs> what, the, what you young people call these things. But um, this chat group that they created in WhatsApp, and they had everyone in it, people who didn't you know, know each other, Seth Luco, TJ Rivera, right, that are not, you know, that have um, Puerto Rican parents, but didn't grow up in Puerto Rico, didn't know each other. And they all communicated through it. So Hector Santiago brought that idea to the Minnesota Twins Clubhouse, and they're doing the same thing. So they put everybody on it, you know, Miguel Sano, you know, Zipo Rios, like all these kids that only speak Spanish, alongside, you know, Urban Santana, who speaks both, with all the American players. And they communicate constantly. And that has created this bond between them. So even the guys don't feel as comfortable speaking in English like Jose Barrios, because Sano tries. He's uh, really improved his English. So Barrios, who doesn't yet, then they can feel very comfortable creating a bond with a teammate because writing it can be a little easier. And writing it, you can look it up or you can, you know, and you're not afraid. And it's created this bond. And they are one of the tightest clubhouses that I've seen in a very long time. And it wasn't like that for the Twins. Obviously, the presence of Paul Molitor has also changed things for them. A new, uh, maybe a new front office has changed things for them. But at the same time, that's what they can do. Reach out. Find like a way to reach out because the Latin players are sometimes very conscious of being loud or being, you know, crossing some sort of line. Like you mentioned before about the hierarchy, that can be a little difficult. You don't know what your place is in this team. It happened to Wilson Contreras with David Ross. Like, you know, you you don't know, but he had Miguel Montero in the middle to bridge that gap when this 23-year-old comes over, you know, with this passion and this fire and takes over the, the, the Cubs clubhouse by storm. So, I think that that's the one thing that you can do. Bridge that gap in some way. And I think that some teams are better than others. And when you're winning, it's easier, of course. But it usually depends also. If if there's not someone that comes up with an idea like Hector Santiago did, there also needs to be somebody, an elderly guy, elderly statesman sort of uh, the sort, that can do that too. Carlos Beltran has always done it in a clubhouse where he's in. Albert Pujols has always done it in the clubhouse that he's in. These kind of guys who have been around, that's why the, the Mariners clubhouse is one of the ones that is also so tight because they have a lot of those guys and in Nelson Cruz, Felix Hernandez, and Robinson Cano. So, you know, they have three guys who really care about, you know, tightening the clubhouse. So if you have a guy like that, that also helps. So I don't know that it's incumbent and only, you know, the American player is also incumbent on the Latin player. And they're being a person who takes charge and does it. And, and I think that the ones who do it the best, the Dodgers do it very well, too, because they have Adrian Gonzalez. I think that that's, that's the necessity. Like those guys who have been around for a long time, who speak both languages very well, that they take charge and they do it. And they, you know, they go, hey, come on, let's go, um, let's go have dinner. Or Adrian Beltre does it at the Rangers very well. You know, he'll invite two people. Hey, you, let's go have dinner. Or you have someone like A.J. Griffin, who grew up, that's a perfect example, who grew up speaking Spanish his entire life. And A.J. Griffin uh, speaks Spanish perfectly, which is really uh, interesting. He speaks it with a Mexican accent. It's just uh, just fantastic. 
grew up in San Diego and, and he'll take charge of, um, of getting all these guys together because language is a barrier. It happened to me when I was a, a teenager. You tend to be with just, you know, people who speak your language and understand you because you're afraid of, of making a fool of yourself. And that's basically it. It's not about being standoffish or anything. You just don't want to look foolish when you're trying to communicate. So that sort of leads into the Mike Schmidt issue. I was, I'm curious if, yeah. I mean, you named half a dozen teams that where the, the elder statesman is a Latin American player, but were you still doing these interviews when that was going on? Did you get a chance to talk to anybody about that? What was the, did that sort of wash over everybody or did it like stick? Was it, you know, actually offensive? I think it was the wash over because I think they saw it not as a, because I think that we have to be careful and it happened almost with, not almost, it also happened with Goose Gossage in the Yankees, right? These are very kind of similar um, not the same comments, but they're on the same vein. Um, it's the difference between an between an older generation of player more than a racist or attacking comment. So I think that we have to be careful with that too. There are a lot of old school players that believe that things are done a particular way, and that doesn't necessarily. Even though I'm not saying that what Mike Schmidt did, you know, did or said is correct. What I'm saying is that he sees the clubhouse in a different way. And I think that's how the guys see it because it did wash over them kind of like, ah, that's old school. It's okay. He can think whatever he wants. I talked to Luis Severino. Uh, we still do um, every Wednesday uh, during my main assignment is Wednesday night baseball this season. I'm, you know, I'm on all the other things I have to do. So for example, today I have the Dodgers uh, versus the Mets and we have the baseball experience broadcast. We do a really big um, thing around this project for broadcasting it today from from Los Angeles, but every Wednesday night baseball, I do a Q and a with uh, one of the guys around the baseball experience thing, a little similar to what we were doing before, but more targeted to topical issues. And when I did it with Luis Severino two weeks ago, the my Schmidt thing had just happened. And I asked Luis about it, Severino. And I said, Hey, um, you know, this is what he said about Oduba and Herrera. Do you think that he can't be a leader in the clubhouse because he doesn't speak English well. And he said, no, if you're a leader and you have leadership skills, you can just get a translator or do it some other way. A leader is a leader, no matter what language he speaks. And that's what Luis Severino said. Talking to other players, it was more like, yeah, the washover, like, oh, that's just an old school opinion and it's okay. He's entitled to it. He's entitled to his opinion. It's just not how it is nowadays. And I think that's the difference they make uh, when you hear those comments. The same time, same thing happened with Goose Gossage. They heard it and they're like, Goose Gossage is an extremely nice guy, very kind and, and generous with his time and good to us. These are, you know, the Latin uh, pitchers and the Yankees speaking about it. And they're like, and I don't really, it's just that he, he sees baseball in a different way. He's in an old school way and he's entitled to it. And that's how they see it. They kind of let it wash over them. Being an American born player of Latino descent, does that, Mm-hmm. create any difficulties in terms of identity, you know, even in terms of guys who guys like Manny Machado or Nolan Arenado, who had a decision to make on which WBC team they were going to play for. Is that a, a serious decision so. for these guys? Yeah. I think so. I mean, not for Manny as much because I think Manny from the beginning, Manny has identified it. It depends on how you grow up. So I don't know that the decision is difficult. I think it happens very individually. Dylan Batanzas had the greatest line. Dylan Batanzas, who is, you know, born and raised in New York city but, you know, spent every summer in the Dominican with his parents, you know, said us Dominicans are born whatever we want. And it's just a great quote because he feels that it just depends on how you identify. So then that's how, that's what can 
or cannot make it difficult for you. It was not difficult for Dylan Batanza to choose to play for uh, Team DR. It was not difficult for Manny Machado to choose to play for Team DR. But it was difficult for Nolan because Nolan Arenado grew up, and I talked to Nolan a lot about this. Nolan Arenado grew up in a, in a household that was divided, right? He has Cuban and Puerto Rican heritage, very close to his Cuban heritage. So his aunts, his dad, like just this very close Cuban heritage that he grew up here in the California area and very identified with his Cuban heritage, but at the same time with his American heritage, because Nolan's you know, family are exiles from Cuba who lost everything. His aunts had very, very difficult exiles from Cuba. So he identified with the Cuban and American side. A lot of people faulted Nolan for not identifying with this Puerto Rican side, which is really remote. His mom is half Puerto Rican. You know, she mostly grew up in New York. It wasn't really a connection that he had to his Puerto Rican roots. So when he goes to choosing and, and he said it is difficult and he talked to his parents about it, if Cuba had been a possibility, maybe Nolan would have had a harder time choosing because he does identify with that Cuban side. But for him, it was the U.S. because it was the, the, the country that gave that extended family, especially his aunt and his cousin and his dad, a new opportunity. And that's why he felt he owed his life, the life that he has in baseball, to the United States. And that was how, that's how he chose to do it. So it has everything to do with how you grew up, how, um, how your parents took care of your heritage and identifying you with that heritage. And most of the Latin players grew up strongly identifying with their Latin heritage because their parents, and that was an interesting topic of conversation with the players that have kids now, their parents really instill that in them. They really want them to feel that that's a part of their heritage too. You know, the same happens with a lot of the Cuban guys in Miami. Gio Gonzalez will speak about it. Yasmani Grandal and Yonder Alonso. These are guys who are very closely identified with their Cuban heritage from their parents, but with their parents being Cuban exiles. It is not a possibility for them to play for Cuba at any point. So it's just very interesting that it has everything to do with how you grew up and what you identify with. So this will be my last one. This will sort of bring us full circle to the the reporting Mm -hmm. aspect of this. You read a story like this, everybody's got their favorite quote, their favorite anecdote. Did you have a a favorite one, something that surprised you or made you laugh? The one that made me laugh out loud, Albert Pujols was telling me just stories and stories, off-color stories about um, Vladimir Guerrero. And um, he told me a story of them being in the elevator. And there was a lady who was a fan. It was during the All-Star game. And there, I can't remember which All-Star game because <laughs> they obviously went to a few together. So um, I, that they were in the elevator and there was a lady who was making fun of Vlad because he didn't speak English. And Vlad turned around and with that flasher, that smile, if you've seen Vladimir Guerrero, he has this legendary smile. Just this gigantic man looks at her, had his bat in his hand and just points to the bat and goes in very thick, Axon tells her, like, my bat is the one who needs to speak English. <laughs> Just That was my favorite story of, um, because I can picture it. I can picture Vlad Guerrero with his, uh, with his thick accent telling this to this lady who, who thought he didn't understand what she was saying. So um, that, was, that was really just my favorite fun stories. And there was just so many. And um, Adrian Beltre told me that he would go hungry at times because he didn't know how to say no pickles. And that was just one of the first phrases he learned in English. No pickles, because he, he hates pickles. So, it's just, uh, so he would go to McDonald's and order, you know, and he would tell me that he would order something. He would open it. It would have pickles. He would throw it out and still wait for someone else to order something else. So he could point and say, 
that one or, you know, the same thing. He told me that's another one that they learn a lot. The same. That's one of the phrases that they learn. And he told me, I learned the same. So someone, I was waiting for someone to order something and I would point and say the same. And then finally it would be like some chicken nuggets and they didn't have pickles. So then that led him to learn the phrase, no pickles, please. And it just, um, just things like that. It's just really interesting. And I, and I wrote this, we had this big intro on the piece and I, and I said, in the beginning, like I told you guys, I had this really long list and I had all these ideas of what I was going to talk about. And then in the end, you just sat down and listened and just really told them, I, I mean, I do pride myself in my interviewing skills that, that it is a part about listening, but if you let them go where they wanted to go with the story, it just became super interesting and just the way they developed Felix Hernandez wouldn't um, would sneak out because he loved basketball more than baseball. So he just would sneak out to the, to the basketball court during practice. And then his mom started taking his idea away. So he wouldn't be able to go to the practice court to play basketball. So he would actually focus just all these little things and little details. And every one of these guys' lives is just so rich and so interesting. Like, you know, incredibly, you know, surprisingly enough, we all are. If you really talk to anyone long enough, you'll find just these little details about their personalities and their stories that are just so interesting. And those are some of the ones just from the top of my head, obviously doing this reporting for a long time. A lot of stories get muddled after a while because, you know, the ones that I did in the beginning, I won't remember as well as I do now. But, you know, just just those things, the struggles are the ones. And, and a lot of them gave a lot of credit to teammates for helping them. And I always found found that very endearing, that there was always a teammate who told him, don't worry about, you know, screwing up the language. Don't worry about this. And would sit down with them and teach them English. And that was also very endearing. And almost every player, like I told you, universally, they all um, hated the food and the language in the beginning. Every one of them had either a coach or a teammate, an American one, who helped them. And I think that that was also really um, good to hear because sometimes we lose faith in humanity. So it's nice. Uh, to hear that there's still good people out there. <laughs> All right. Well, you've been very generous with your time, and there's still no, so please. much from this piece that we haven't covered. So I'd encourage everyone to go read it and the baseball experience in general all season long. And you can catch Marley in many places, as she has mentioned, <laughs> Wednesday Night Baseball, also on Nacion ESPN, on ESPN2, on Monday afternoons. You can find her on ESPN and ESPN Deportes. And she's also on Twitter at Marley Rivera ESPN. SPN. So thank you so much, Marley. Oh, thank you for your time, guys. And if you want to keep reading about the baseball experience, because all those things that he mentioned may be cool, but I'm a writer. So um, please uh, <laughs> check out our, our Wednesday interviews. They usually get published on Saturday or Sunday. So if you want to learn a little bit more about uh, these guys, we publish them in Spanish and English. So you can practice your Spanish and learn a couple of phrases. And we do them either on Saturday or Sunday on ESPN.com or ESPNDeportes.com. Thank you, guys. All right. Thanks again. We didn't mention that the percentage of Latino players on opening day rosters this year was up to 26.4%. That is the highest in Major League history. And so it is fitting that they would get the spotlight shown on them this season. And so we're glad we could have Marley on to talk about that. And we will be back with another episode, as always, on Monday. Talk to you then, Michael. Bye. Bye.